seated. It's, it's a pleasure to have uh, Ron, Brother Ron Plazinski, come and, and minister to us this morning. Um, we just appreciate him being able to fill in and, and give Pastor Mark uh, much needed rest from time to time. And so we're looking forward to what uh, God has to say to us this morning uh, through Brother Ron. morning. What are you totally committed to in life? Jan Hus, often pronounced John Hus in English, was a Czech priest, philosopher, reformer, and master at Charles University in Prague. He is famed for having been burned at the stake for his unwavering commitment to biblical Christianity during the 15th century in light of the false teachings of the Catholic Church at that time. Huss went on to become a key predecessor to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, having influenced none other than Martin Luther himself. In American history, 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. Of those 56, five were captured by the British, tortured and killed. Twelve others had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons as they fought in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two of his sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds and hardship of the war. Now, what each of these men had in common was a total unwavering commitment to the circumstances at hand. Poster George Gallup contends that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed to Christ. Most of those who profess Christianity don't even know the basic teachings of the faith and don't act any differently because of their Christian experience. George Barna 
found that 83% of Americans identify themselves as Christians, yet 49%, only 49%, describe themselves as totally committed to Christianity. Jesus had lots to say in Scripture on what it means to be totally committed to him. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus then told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This morning we're going to be looking at Romans 12, 1 and 2. It made much sense here at the end of the month to kind of do an exposition on the verse that we've been memorizing throughout the month. So we're going to look at the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2 of what Paul has to say about being totally committed to God. So if you're not already there, take your Bible, turn to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. If you'd like to use the pew Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 1351. Page 1351 in the pew Bible. I'll give you just a moment to get there. Follow along with me as I read aloud Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, come now in this service. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your word. Open your word to us. Open us to your word this morning, particularly Romans 12, 1 and 2, as it deals with total commitment. Father, prepare each one of us to receive from your word today. Fill me with your spirit that I might preach in boldness and power your revealed truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You have in your bulletin before you the four points we're going to look at. I won't read them all. We will start off with number one, which is the fuel of total commitment, the fuel of total commitment, the mercies of God. Romans chapter 12 marks a major division for the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans as a whole. Paul's move from theological discourse in the first 11 chapters of the book to ethical exhortations in the remaining chapters, chapters 12 through 15. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, at the beginning of this ethical discourse, marks for the Apostle Paul his thesis of the Christian life, encapsulated in two verses. So it's the natural conclusion of everything he's just said in the first 11 chapters, theologically, about where we were apart from God and what God has done for us 
It's a summary of that and the thesis of all that's to come. Paul then uses the rest of Romans to unpack those two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, in moving from theology in the first 11 chapters of Romans to commitment in chapters 12 to 15, Paul shows us that doctrine is practical for everyday Christian living. Far from being heady or irrelevant to the Christian life, Paul links theology and practical Christian living. All of our Christian living, if we are to live out a vibrant Christian faith, it must be rooted in the deep theological truths of God's word. That means we must spend much time digging into that. That's exactly what Paul does. It's taken 11 chapters to unpack all that before he begins to give us any exhortations coming out of that. Doctrine is vitally important to the Christian life. Pastor John MacArthur has an article entitled Doctrine is Practical in which he just, coming from Romans 12, 1 and 2, in which he just says, the problem with preaching today is not that it's not doctrinal enough, or excuse me, that it's too doctrinal. It's, the problem with preaching today is that it's not doctrinal enough. Preaching today is too consumed with too much, according to MacArthur, pseudo-psychological applications supposedly for the Christian life, and not founded enough in the deep theological doctrines of our faith, then from which the application should come. No one knows this better than the Apostle Paul. In the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul summarizes the biblical understanding of man in the first three chapters. He explains that the wrath of God is justly poured out on the sins of mankind, that Jew and Gentile alike are alienated from God. And then Paul, in Romans chapter 3, sums up this indictment on the human right race in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, by saying this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Having concluded that the law can justify no one, Paul, in Romans chapter 4, then introduces, through the example of Abraham, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Pastor R.C. Sproul says, that is the singular doctrine that the Christian church stands and falls on. The doctrine of justification by faith, which we have in Romans chapter 4. Then, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul speaks about the fruit of justification with God, being peace with God. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, Paul discusses the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Then in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul takes on a thorny theological issue that he knew his readers would, would naturally think about. If salvation is by faith alone, what then happens to Israel who inherited the law? And that's what Paul tackles in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. And then, of course, we come to Romans chapter 12, the ethical exhortations. Now, after that deeply rich 
and doctrinal survey of what God has done for us in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul then breaks out in spontaneous praise as a result of all this. So if you're looking in your Bibles, if you're at Romans 12, 1 and 2, just look at the few verses right before chapter 12, chapters 11, verses 33 to 36. This... All Paul's study of the great doctrines of faith, of the mercies that he has received in God, bring him to this point in chapters 11, verse 33 and 36, to say this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul can't help but being overwhelmed. Before he can even get to the point in his letter of getting to the practical application, he stops, is so overwhelmed by what he's just unpacked, for his readers, he breaks out in spontaneous praise himself. What about us? Are we overcome on a continual basis over the depths of the riches of the mercies we have received from God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Do we regularly call to mind First, and before we try and figure out what God would have me do in this situation, do we regularly call to mind what God has done for me to bring me to this point so that I can even have a desire to ask the question, God, what would you have me to do in this situation? In the 1800s, Ann Judson, and you have this quote in your bulletin. It is a long quote. I won't read it all here. In the 1800s, Ann Judson, wife of missionary Adoniram Judson, in reflecting on the mercies of God, said this. While thus recounting the mercies of God to my soul, I am particularly affected by two considerations. The richness of that grace, which called me and stopped me in my dangerous course, and the ungrateful returns I make to so distinguish a blessing. I am prone to forget the voice which called me out of darkness into the light and the hand which drew me from the horrible pit and the miry clay. And I'll leave the rest of that quote for you to read some other time. Do we spend time recounting the mercies of God so lavishly bestowed upon us? We should. Because it is in that truth, it is in that act of spending so much time recounting what God has done for us, that we will have the fuel to carry on in what God would have us to do in our present situation. All things would become clear if we would spend more time studying the depths of our depravity before the cross and the riches of the gifts we've received because of cross. Paul actually gives us a helpful paradigm in what he's doing in the book of Romans that we can follow in that, as I've already hinted at, he takes 11 chapters to unpack these deep, weighty truths that sometimes we think are over our head 
so maybe we should leave those for somebody else. But he takes it straight on, tells these Roman Christians, reminds them of these things, taking 11 chapters to do it. He then moves to heartfelt prayer at the end of chapter 11, which we've already read. And then and only then does he move on to practical application. We should be a people together that spend the bulk of our lives recounting, cherishing what God in Christ has done for us. Bringing these to mind, not only for ourselves and to our own souls, but being a people who bring these things to mind in or to one another. In context like growth groups, Sunday school, and when we're outside of the, this weekly corporate gathering as we're touching base with one another. We should always be reminding ourselves of what God has done for us. Allow others to see it lead to spontaneous praise and deep heartfelt prayer in our lives. And then go on to application. To living out the rich truths we have received. Now after Paul sums up all that God has done for us with that phrase in in chapter 12, verse 1, mercies of God, he then moves to the practical outworking, given a command. And this brings us to our second point, the object of total commitment. The object of total commitment, the whole self. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and here's the command, to present your bodies. This is what we're to do, to do in light of what God has done for us. Now, one thing that's always struck me over the years as I've gone back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 for me has always been a favorite verse, a, a verse that I've gone back to, a set of verses I've gone back to often. And what has always struck me, as I hope it strikes you, is the richness of the sacrificial language that's packed tightly in those two verses. Paul fills these two verses with numerous allusions to the Old Testament sacrificial system. There's a lot of sacrificial language in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And the first glimpse we get of this is this first command, present your bodies. The word for present is actually a technical word referring directly in the Old Testament to the presentation of that animal sacrifice at the altar to God. However, here in Romans and throughout the New Testament, Paul brings the entire Old Testament sacrificial system to its natural fulfillment. We no longer need to offer up through a priest an endless array of animal sacrifices. Under the new covenant in Christ, we become that sacrifice. And we become the priest that daily offers ourselves to God. In doing this, the apostle shows us that the Old Testament that everything in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, points towards Christ, points to something else in front of it. We now become that which is sacrificed. All the Old Testament ritual Jewish worship is turned on its head in the New Covenant in Christ. Martin Luther, that great 16th century Protestant reformer, commenting on these verses, says this, St. Paul teaches us the true liturgy and makes all Christians priests so that they may offer not only money or cattle, as priests do in the law, 
but their own bodies, putting their desires to death. We become, because of Christ, both priest and sacrifice under the new covenant. We present ourselves to God. It is a command. So because of everything that God has done, it does have ethical implications upon our lives. We're to do something as a result of what God has done for us. We're to present ourselves back to him. This is what should define us as a people of God. It is what sets us apart from the world around us. The phrase, present your bodies, as I've already alluded to, is Paul's main verb. This is the main thing Paul's trying to get across in Romans 12, 1 and 2 because of the previous 11 chapters. We're to do this, present ourselves to God. He then further explains that or unpacks what it means to present ourselves by using three descriptive words, living, holy, and acceptable to God. And those three are best rightly understood to come after that word sacrifice as if you're using the King James Version, it says, present yourselves a sacrifice which is living and holy and acceptable is the word order in the original language there. Living here, then, means in the sense, not whether or not the sacrifice was dead or alive, because every animal sacrifice in the Old Testament is alive at the point of the offering of it. Living in this sense, what Paul means is that to present ourselves to God as a, as a sacrifice, we do this because we have already received true life. It is true living for the Christian to use our lives to continually present ourselves back to the one who has saved us. This is true life bound up for the Christian. This is what we were meant to live for. This is our life. It makes sense. And that actually comes in view more with that word for worship from which we get our English word logical. It, it is the logical thing, the reasonable thing, some of the translations say, to be doing this because of what we received from God. True living for the Christian is seen in the offering of ourselves continually back to the one who has redeemed us from the miry pit. Holy means to be set apart. We are not our own. We are bought at a price. So we are literally set apart for God's use. Acceptable, again, in those three words, along with the command to present ourselves, those three qualifiers are the rest of the language Paul loads up in these verses that's intended to be allusions to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Living, holy, acceptable. They're all allusions. To be acceptable is an allusion to the Old Testament process where somewhere when you presented your offering on the altar, the priest burned it on the altar, that fragrance that went up to God in the Old Testament was said to be acceptable to God. So the presentation of ourselves continually back to God, our presentation of ourselves is to be living. It's what we were meant for. It is meant to be holy. We are set apart, and it is acceptable to God. The command Paul gives to present ourselves, as I've already hinted at numerous times, it's a continual thing. It's not a one 
time, presentation, and then that's it. The whole point is, because of everything God has done for us, we're, our lives are to be about Romans 12, 1 and 2, continually. This is what we are to be about as a people of God. Why would Paul write to people who have already received God's mercy in salvation and then in turn tell them to give themselves back to God? Doesn't the Scriptures tell us that in coming to Christ, we've already passed from death to life? Why are we then commanded to present ourselves back to God? Haven't we already been presented to God through Christ's work for us on the cross of Christ? This past Christmas, I had asked of my wife some good Christian audiobooks. I spent a lot of time in my car driving around during the day with, with the work I do. So I thought good use of my time would be good Christian audiobooks. One of the ones she bought me is a book that I love. She did a great job picking it out. A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God, which I would recommend to anybody. Fantastic book. In that book, Tozer gets to a point that I think is is helpful here in this idea of why Paul is telling believers, uh, he obviously refers to them as believers in Romans 12.1, why he's telling believers who have already been presented to God to continually present themselves back to God. A.W. Tozer talks about the soul's paradox of love, that those who are already in the hand of God are to pursue God diligently daily. So in one sense, the the pursuit has been accomplished for us in Christ presenting us to God. So we're already God's, but yet we're to pursue him daily. I think maybe that's useful in understanding the continual aspects of what Paul is talking about here and why, though we've been presented to God, why we're to continue doing it. It is the soul's paradox of love, that though we've already been presented to God, We can pursue him. We can present ourselves daily to him. It is something that he wants from us. If the fuel of total commitment to God, then, is the recalling of his mercies toward us, and if the object of total commitment is the continual presentation of ourselves to him, then third, the process of total commitment, the process of total commitment, renewal of the mind. Our third point, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here Paul gives two commands, one negative and one positive, but both intended to describe the one process of verse 1, of what it looks like to fulfill the command in verse 1. So verse 2, then properly understood, is an unpacking, a further clarification of verse 1. The process of becoming more like Christ is here sharply contrasted with becoming more like the world. We're always being shaped by something in this life. Every waking moment, there are forces shaping us, making us who we are. Will we allow ourselves to have received God's mercies to trample upon them and go on allowing ourselves to be shaped by the world around us? Or will we 
take part in the continual sanctification process of being transformed by the renewal of our mind. The word for world here in the text has the more general meaning of, of age. In the Jewish understanding of the world, uh, it was always broken up in two aspects. The present age, which is evil, the present evil age, and the future age to come, which is blessed. So Paul's point is that the renewal process of the mind, which is the key to presenting ourselves, that renewal process takes place as believers resist this present evil age and its forces, and we give ourselves to a new way of thinking. That future age to come has been inaugurated in this present evil age at the cross of Christ. And that renewal process of the Christian mind takes place as we, we bring that way of thinking from the age to come into this present evil age. It's no easy task to, to do that. But if we keep our eyes on God's mercies, what he has done for us, it becomes easier. And if we commit to one another to be a type of people that remind ourselves of this, I think the doing becomes all the more easier. If you have the NIV version, the way it's translated there, of verse 2, is probably a little more helpful to, to get across the shaping influence that verse 2 is talking about and the way the world can shape us. When, in verse 2, the NIV says this, do not conform any long, longer to the pattern of this world. The mind is a battleground. The Bible has much to say about the role of the mind in the life of the believer. In Isaiah, the, the mind can determine how we react to our environment. So, in Isaiah 26, verse 3, the prophet says this, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. So we can experience peace if we do the work of staying our mind, not on our circumstances, but on the God of those circumstances, we can experience peace. Matthew tells us that the mind is capable of love toward God. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Matthew says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In Peter, the mind is able to unify us. Peter says this, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, finally, all of you have unity in mind. This is what we as the people of God are to look like. We're, we're to be unified in mind. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education in itself. 
this process of total renewal, total commitment to God through the renewal of the mind is going to take all we have. Being a Christian takes the efforts of the whole person, mind and all. We need to keep guard over our minds, therefore. We need to work diligently to continually transform unhealthy thought patterns which come from the influence of the world around us. Even as Christians, we're influenced by this. We need to stay on guard about these unhealthy patterns, asking others, and this isn't an easy process, it's a painful process, but it's part of being obedient to Romans 12, 1 and 2. We need to have others around us love us enough to say when it appears we are being too influenced by those unhealthy patterns around us. We're not always able to see the way that works in our own lives. How are we doing on this? What are we setting before our eyes and allowing to influence the ways we think and we live? The result of total commitment. Our fourth point. The result of total commitment, knowledge of God's will. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. That it is good and acceptable and perfect. The result of total commitment to God, Paul says here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, is the knowledge of the will of God. That is a very difficult topic for us as Christians. We all want to know what God's will is for us. Well, Paul here in Romans 12, 1 and 2 gives a prescription to knowing what God's will is for us. It's through being totally committed to him, through reminding ourselves of what he's done, of then presenting ourselves continually back to him daily, and through that process, God's will for us then becomes all the more clear. Finding and knowing the will of God can be a struggle. But Paul gives us a plan to that end in these two verses. It is as we give ourselves to the renewal of the mind that we're able to discern the will of God. And if we're slacking in that, if we find that process difficult or painful, then yes, probably discerning the will of God, what God would have me to do, is going to become difficult and cloudy. Now, when we think of the will of God, we often think questions like, who does God have for me to marry? Who should I marry? What church should I go to? What job should I have? What car should I buy? Where should I live? So on and so, on and so forth, and just a myriad of questions. But Paul ties the will of God to something different, not only here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We don't see those concepts here in these verses, but elsewhere also Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says this. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul then further defines what the will of God in our sanctification looks like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 by including three phrases, each of which begin with the word that. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 3. This is the will of God, excuse me, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
And finally, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all things. That is the will of God, our sanctification. Later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul concludes his letter by saying this, again about the will of God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Jesus Christ for you. Excuse me, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. And I think that's a more biblical approach to what the Bible means by the will of God. The will of God in Scripture is not primarily who am I intended to marry, what church am I to attend, so on and so forth. It is our sanctification, our process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And I think the point of Scripture is as we're doing that, all these other things become more clear. So this is what total commitment to God is to look like. We are to be totally committed to God because of what he has done for us, because of the abundance of mercies we have received in him. We are to act. We are to present ourselves individually and as a corporate body. We are to be before one another, a people, a person, where we can observe one another doing precisely this. To present ourselves back to God. To offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice, which is the logical thing to do. Our logical worship, our reasonable worship because of what he has done for us. Aaron Ralston left his home one day in May of 2003 in Aspen, Colorado for an eight-hour, 13-mile adventure in Utah's remote Blue John Canyon. During his hike, he dislodged a huge boulder in what's called a slot canyon. And it pinned his hand and forearm beneath this huge boulder. After an agonizing five days trapped beneath this boulder, no one knew he went on this expedition. He didn't tell anybody before he left home. After five agonizing days, Ralston, armed with nothing but a dull pocket knife and a total commitment for his survival, made the decision to cut off the now dead hand and arm just below the elbow. After taking a, about an hour to do that, and in recounting this story, he said he was passing in and out of consciousness throughout this hour, he then applied a tourniquet and bandage to the stump and somehow was able to make his way toward the remote trailhead where he had come from, and then, after having performed this self-amputation, managed to somehow repel 60 feet uh, to where he needed to go, and then continued to walk until he found some other hikers who were, were able to get him the help he needed. Aaron Ralston was totally committed to his survival in that situation. We as Christians are called because of what we have received to be totally committed in our worship back to God. The Apostle Paul is speaking of his own unwavering and total commitment to God in Philippians chapter 3 tells us this. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We started this sermon with a question, what are we totally committed to in this life? If the answer to that question is any other thing than Paul's own burning desire, for instance, the way he responded to the Philippians, then we should be challenged to re-examine where our commitments lie in this life and what is truly going to matter at the end of our lives. We're all totally committed to something. What is that? For the Christian, it's to be Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, again, there's something that gets you up in the morning. There's something that drives you. There's something you're committed to to help this life make sense to you. If you answer that question, what am I totally committed to, in any other way than this biblical response, are you sure on the day of your death when you stand before God and he asks you why he should allow you into his heaven, are you going to be sure that your commitments you held to in life are going to stand strong for you on that day? That what you were committed to in this life will allow you to gain entrance into heaven. Are you sure, are we sure that what we are committed to in this life would be pleasing to God on that day? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, that we might be a people absolutely overwhelmed, brought low by the remembrance and intentional recounting of these deep truths of what you have done for us, of the depths of where we were apart from you, and of the richness of the mercies we have received in Christ, of being brought out of the miry clay, and of being crowned with favor and loving kindness, of being given the adoption as sons and daughters of the king, of of receiving an eternal inheritance. Oh, that we might be overwhelmed by these things. And may these things, may we be a people who continually recount them to ourselves and one another. May this spur us on to total commitment to biblical worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me as we turn to hymn number 224.
Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, when we survey the wondrous cross, oh, what words? May we survey that cross often in our lives. And when we survey it, we see your mercies toward us as sinners. As we go from here today, Father, may we this week keep our eyes on the wonder of the cross, allowing it, us, allowing it to guide us and to shape us. In Jesus' name, amen.